Good morning. It's wonderful to see everyone. After a, a year's delay, we're finally able to do this, and I am very, very excited to be with you all again. I've been with you before, though you, you may not remember, and some of you may be feeling like you're getting a bit of a bait and switch, because I think this was taken from the last time I was here. And uh, it's not too bad of a, a looking of a young man right there, but uh, now you've got the grizzled old, old timer. Uh, whoever put this together, I need to speak to you about becoming my publicist. I think we could go places with a young photo like that. Well, it's, uh, it is a pleasure to be with you all, and I, I, I think I've got this right. I am getting terrible with my memory, but I think we were planning to do this last year, and uh, everything was going crazy this time last year, kind of trying to do that again now, but we, uh, we put it off and rescheduled for this year. And, and I don't know about you, but one thing that the past year has taught me, if nothing else, is that I don't want to take anything for granted. And I certainly don't want to take you for granted. I don't want to take any opportunity to live my life for the Lord, to preach his message wherever I have the chance to do so. And I'm just glad to be here. And I hope that you are as well. I hope that the time that we spend together this week will build you up in the Lord, give you courage and confidence and strength as you move forward in life. I, I, I want to begin this uh, meeting. There's going to be two parts to this meeting today and then Monday through Thursday. Monday through Thursday, we're going to focus on some lessons I'm just calling when the waves keep coming. And it's about how to stay afloat in your faith and in and, and your life when, when one difficult thing keeps coming after another. There are four truths that can sort of function like life preservers that we can hold on to that can keep us afloat when life gets really, really rough. So we'll be talking about that during the weeknights, but today I have two lessons that are uh, from a four-part series that I have done in the past on building margin, on building margin. And the idea came from a book that I read a number of years ago that was uh, released by a medical doctor by the name of Richard Swenson, and the title of the book was simply Margin, and uh, he described the problem as he saw it from his practice of people suffering a, a great deal of pain emotionally, financially, relationally, even spiritually as a consequence of what he disguised, dis, described as overload or diagnosed as overload. What's overload? Well, if you, if you drive a vehicle, you know what it is to put more weight on it than that vehicle's rated for. And if you try to push those limits too far, you're going to snap an axle or something wrong is going to happen. Or if you're a weightlifter, you know that there's, there's got to be some margin between the weight that you're trying to lift and what your absolute max is, or you're not going to be able to move the weight. Or if you're a runner, I've spent most of my life as, as a runner and an endurance uh, athlete, and you have to know a little bit about pacing yourself, don't you? In fact, one of the things I get a kick out of every now and then is going to a race where there's uh, going to be a mile run or something like that for little kids. And they are all excited and they're keyed up and they're all bunched up at the start and the gun goes off and they are, there's always a few of them that just go out of the gate at an absolute full-out sprint. And the one thing that you know for sure is that that kid that is leading at 50 yards is not the kid that's going to win because he is going at his maximum effort 
He has no margin, and pretty soon he's going to slow down and end up actually finishing the race at a much slower time than he would have if he had paced himself properly from the beginning. So there needs to be some margin between our max load, our maximum effort, our maximum pace, our maximum schedule, our maximum income level, our maximum moral level. We'll talk about that in in a few moments and the, the life that we're actually living. And all of this is rooted very much in a biblical precedent, thinking back in the Old Testament about the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, where Pharaoh required the people to work seven days a week, all day long, and if you are a slave, the one thing that you don't want to do is call in sick to work. Because a non-productive slave, a slave who's sick, is a slave who is dead. You don't work, you don't eat. There there is no reason to waste resources on a unit that is not producing at maximum uh, function. And so that's the life that they had been living. And then God brings them out of Egypt and he tells them, I want you to take a day off. Now, you can imagine for those people, that was good news. That's good news. But... But think about it, that's also a loss of a lot of productivity. And especially after they came out of the wilderness and settled into the promised land where there was no longer manna falling from the sky and quail miraculously flying into the the camp, and they had to begin raising crops and fishing and doing the various things that they had to do economically in order to sustain themselves and survive, And the idea of taking one out of every seven days off and doing no work. I mean, that was the commandment. On this day, you shall do no work. You won't work. Your wife won't work. Your children won't work. Your servants won't work. Your animals won't work. You shall not worketh on the Sabbath. God was very clear that that's what he wanted the people to do. But that's even more than 10% loss and potential production, isn't it? It seems that God understands something about human nature that we tend to miss, and that is the need for some margin between the maximum load that we could possibly bear and the pace that's actually sustainable. And though we know we're not living under the old law and we aren't required by God to take a day off for rest like they did, The principle certainly is there, and as we mature in Christ, the idea is not that we forget all of the elementary principles that were to be learned under the old law, but we're to bring them in and rethink them and apply them in uh, adult sort of ways. And the principle that we need rest, that we need a margin, is rooted in biblical Uh, content that we need to learn to apply in our lives or we will face the kinds of problems that Dr. Swenson points out. A lot of pain, a lot of stress in our relationships. You know this is true. As the margin in your schedule and in your finances and in your morality, as, as that margin gets thinner and thinner, what happens in your relationships with your spouse, with your children, with your friends and neighbors, As the margin gets thinner, the relational stress gets higher. God understands that. God also wants us to be generous. He wants us to be uh, cheerful givers. 
He wants us to love the widow, to care for the orphan. These are things that both the Old and New Testament tell us are indicative of a true of true religion, the religion that God is truly looking for is one that cares for the widow and the orphan in their time of need, a generous giver. And yet if we have no financial margin, which we're going to talk about in the next hour, we're not going to be able to be a cheerful giver. If we're able to give at all, we'll give grudgingly because we have no margin between what's coming in and what's going out. And again, when we look to the old law, what do we see? God not only told them, I want you to take a day off each week, I want you to also, when you harvest your fields, to leave the edges of the fields unharvested. Why? So that the poor and the needy would be able to come and glean from those things for themselves. And we also, what he was saying there is that there needs to be a margin between what you could maximally profit from and what you can leave to be a generous giver for someone else who has a great need. So again, I think that we see that there are all these kinds of principles, certainly morally as well. If, if, we, if we push the limits on what we think, you know, we ask the question, is it a sin? I don't think that's really the best question for us to ask. Maybe a better question is, is it wise? Uh, and if we start pushing up against the limit and seeing how close that we can get to it, we know that we're only this far away from a moral catastrophe that would absolutely upend our lives. And so there needs to be some kind of cushion, some sort of margin in our schedule, in our finances, in our morals, and perhaps other areas that you could think of between our maximum load and our present uh, pace. And that's the way we're simply defining margin in this two-part series today. The space between our current pace and our absolute limit. Well, when I preached this lesson at home, there were people who said that they were so busy doing things that they can't enjoy the things that they're doing. Have you ever, <laughs> have you ever experienced that? We're so busy doing things, we can't actually enjoy the things that we're doing. We're, we're here at, the, at this event for the kids, and we're just watching the watch because we got to get to a, another event after that. And when it's over, we're, we're going somewhere else, and we're never able to actually enjoy the moment and be a uh, fully present in whatever's going on or in each other's lives because we're constantly up against the limit on what's going on. Somebody said, if I were a camel, I'd be one straw away from a broken back. And that may describe some of us this morning. If you're like me, though, you may think that the solution to this problem would just be a little bit more time. If God would just give me a little bit more time, then everything would work out well. If I had a little bit more time... I wouldn't panic when a friend asks for help. You ever have that panicking feeling? A friend, hey, I hate to ask you this, but could you help me? You fill in the blank. And you just sort of get that. You start thinking about all the things. I'm already right at my limit in terms of the time that I have available. And for a friend to ask for help, that's just going to push me into overload. And I sort of get a panicked and anxious feeling as I try to think of how in the world can I do this. But if I just had more time, then I could do that. Or we think, if I had more time, I could actually listen to my children without being distracted. 
without having to constantly be at work and at home at the same time. I'm at home and I'm worried because I'm not getting as much done at the office as needs to be done and I wish I were there. And I'm at the office and I'm not being as productive as I could be because I'm thinking about I should be at home with the kids or I should be at this event with them or I should be dating my wife and keeping that relationship strong. I can't be present anywhere I'm at because I'm always thinking and feeling guilty about where I'm not. We think if I just had more time, I could be a better church member too. In fact, I'd actually be a member of the body of Christ, not just an attender on Sundays. But because we don't have any more to give than just the absolute minimum of of showing up, singing a few songs, engaging in prayer, listening to the sermon, taking the Lord's Supper, giving some of our means, and then getting out and getting back into the hurly-burly of life, that's all I can do. And, And, you know... I'm not disparaging any of those activities, but we all understand that what God envisions in Scripture about the church is that it's so much more than just a place that you attend. It's a body that you belong to. It's a group of people that you give and share your life with. And I'd love to be able to do that. In fact, I'd love to be a Bible class teacher, but I I just don't have the time to prepare a lesson. And I don't have the time to do the study to become a person who could, could, could have the knowledge that I would need in order to be able to teach other people. Or I'd like to carry meals to the, to the sick or to the ladies who just gave birth to a new child or to others who are going through some kind of hard time. But I, I just don't have time. But if I had more time, then I could actually be a member of the body and not merely an attender. Or we would say, if I had more time, Then I would open up my Bible each day. I'd shut the door, and I would quietly, without feelings of being rushed and hurried, read the Word of God, meditate on it, absorb it into my spirit, into my personality, so that I would be transformed, and I would pray to God, and I'd pray for other people and for the advance of his kingdom. All those things would be a part of my life if only I had a little bit more time. But let me ask you this question. What would you do if God suddenly gave you a 26-hour day? If he just gave you two more hours a day and put that into there, what would that be? That'd be like uh, 14 hours a week. If you suddenly had 14 hours more a week, would that be enough for you to be able to do all these other things that we talked about? If you're honest, I mean, really, what would you do with those two extra days? I think most likely we would do more of the same of what we're already doing. It'd be an opportunity to get into the office a little bit quicker, to add one more activity to our already overburdened schedule. And the reality is we would simply be in a deeper state of overload than we were before. We're living in a culture that reminds me of a vehicle that I once had that no matter how many times I took it into the alignment shop, they could not stop it from pulling to the right. It just, the car would go down the highway, and if you take your hands off the wheel, it's going to pull to the right, and if you don't correct, you're going into the ditch. You ever have one of those? (laughs) Yeah. The 70s, man, they made some awesome cars, didn't they? And... (laughs) That's kind of the way life for us is in the times that we're living. 
if you're not steering, if you don't have your hand on the wheel all the time and consciously denying yourself of over-engagement and over-scheduling and over-commitment to things that are of secondary and third-level importance, it's going to take control and pull you right where it wants you to go. That is the American way. It's the culture of which we're a part. More, more, more. Hurry, hurry, hurry. One more thing added to the list. In some ways, to me, it seems like that's much more of a slave mentality. That's Pharaoh demanding of us to prove our worth, to prove that we have the right to be fed today because we did so many activities. Rather than the attitude of God toward his children, I want you to take a day off and acknowledge me and realize that the whole world doesn't rest on your shoulders. And I want you to put faith in me. And even when it's the harvest time, can you imagine being an Israelite and the harvest is coming in and you didn't get it all done in the week and it's the Sabbath day and you've got to take a day off? You're going to have to trust me. And I think that that's what God is calling us to in that course correction, that we not allow our culture that's trying to always add one more thing to, to make us feel like that's what's necessary in order for me to justify my existence and instead to learn to be still and know that I am God. And so what can we do? How can we gain the needed perspective to learn to say no to things of lesser importance? There's two great men in the Bible who I think give us insight on this more than any other. The first is Solomon. In the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm sorry, in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and in verse 2, Solomon says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Now, most of us are probably familiar with this verse, but what's he saying? He's saying, actually, it's better to go to a funeral than it is to a party. Now, I like parties. I like hanging out with friends. I like going and being with people that I enjoy being around and having a good time. And Solomon isn't saying you should never do that, but he's, he's telling us that it's better to go to the place where people are grieving the loss of a loved one. It's better to go to a place where a person lies in a casket at the front of the room and we are memorializing their life. And he says that it's better for us to do that for this reason. He says, because death is the destiny of every man. And the living, that's you and me, should take it to heart. He's saying there are things that you will learn at a funeral that you will never learn at a party. That you'll never learn in an office meeting that you'll never learn while you're just trying to fill out your busy schedule and, and planner for the week. There's things that you're going to learn when you're forced to slow down and face the harsh reality that all of us have an expiration date, that there is a limit to the time that we have in this world. And when we get that fixed in our mind, then we can begin to think about what is really important and begin to prioritize it properly. And so Solomon says we need to take it to heart. We have to let this reality sink in that my life is not endless. And Moses does the same thing. 
We usually think of the Psalms and we associate them with David, and many of them are, but Moses is also the author of some of the Psalms. He's author of Psalm 90, which is a magnificent psalm. When I think about the life of Moses, I think about it divided up into three segments, don't you? There was the first segment where he grew up in Pharaoh's house, and I'm sure he learned they probably had their their, their tablets, their chisels, and, and whatever they used to write out their schedule for the day because they were, you know, trying to rule a nation, and he had to learn all of these things by a very busy young man. And then, because he tried to, uh, he, he killed a man, and that's frowned upon in some, you know, better society, he had to flee for his life into the wilderness where he became what? A shepherd. A shepherd in the wilderness. Now, you talk about some long, boring days, <laughs> He had some long, boring days, and then suddenly, unexpectedly, and I'm sure during that period of time, he thought that was going to be the entirety of the rest of his life when God called him to come and confront Pharaoh and lead God's people out of Egypt into the promised land. And there he became very busy again with the responsibility of leading God's people. And perhaps at some point toward the end of this life, he reflected back on all of it and he, and he thought about what it all means and, and how he should understand it and how you should think about your schedule, if you will, and the way that you're living your life in this world. And so here's the things that Moses says to us in this psalm. Psalm 90, beginning in verse 1. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. In other words, the history of Israel, but for us, all mankind, and certainly God's people, you have been our dwelling place. In other words, humanity and you as a child of God in particular are nested within the context of of a much greater picture. God, he says, was there before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I love the way he begins this. If you draw the arrows of time pointing backwards and forward, they they have arrows on the end implying that they go on for infinity in every direction. There was never a beginning point for God, the unmoved mover, the uncreated cause of all that is, who has been there, lives in a timeless existence, and yet here we are nested within the context of that infinite reality. But we are not infinite. We rest within the context of an infinite God, but we are limited in terms of our lives in this world, to be sure. And so it contrasts this timeless and infinite God and where we are nested within that reality. And he says the length of our days, describing our existence on this world, The length of our days is 70 or 80 years. If we have strength, yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. There's an old hymn I remember singing as a kid that didn't quite make sense to me, but it does now that I think of it, and I'm sure it was inspired by this verse. Some glad morning when this life is o'er, we will fly away. And so the 
the reality that Moses had, even looking back at 80 or in his case, possibly as much as 120 years, he said it just quickly passes. And I know for young people, that, that's kind of a hard thing to believe. It just seems like, yeah, life, life's, life is long. Life's going to go on forever. But as you get up, up in years, as you get older, when you reach that midlife crisis, I think it's partly because you start realizing that there's more in the rearview mirror than there is in the windshield of your earthly sojourn. And that becomes more and more the case the older we get. And we're forced to come to the reality that Solomon spoke of earlier, that Death is the end of all men. And not only that, it is coming much more quickly than we can imagine. Driving down here, this was going through my mind, and I was looking at those, uh, what do you call the dashes on the pavement, you know, that separates the lanes. And I just got to watching them as they would come along and disappear as my truck would pass by them. And the thought occurred to me, that's kind of like the years of our lives. They're just passing, passing, passing by. And so Moses says, like Solomon, we need to let this sink in. We should take it to heart. And so he says in verse 12, Lord, teach us to number our days. Lord, you who have this grand and eternal perspective in which we live our short little lives under the sun Teach us, Lord, to number these days that are quickly, quickly passing us by. And why would he want us to number our days? So that, he says, we may gain a heart of wisdom. When we take to heart the fact that our days are numbered, that there is a limit, a finite number of days that I have to live in this world all of a sudden, life takes on a different meaning, a different perspective for us. And he's praying in this psalm that God would enable us while we're young, while we're still living, while we're in the prime of our life, however many days we have left, to take this to heart so that we can get the wisdom that comes from realizing that our days are numbered. Another way of saying this might be simply to put it like this. If we live as if our days are numbered, we can act wisely about the days of our life. If we live as if our days are numbered, we can act wisely about the days of our life. And he'll teach us what to put in to our schedule. Lord, because my days are numbered, because I only have so much time in this world, Teach me, give me the heart of wisdom. Let me lay it to heart and give me that perspective that comes from your point of view, your eternal point of view, looking at my very brief moment on this world. Teach me what to put in to my schedule so that I won't miss out on the purpose and the plan that you have for me in my life while I'm living here. You ever thought about that? That God put you here on purpose and for a reason that you're not a cosmic accident? that God really does have something in mind for you to do, and are you pursuing what God put you here to do, or are you wasting your life? Only dreaming about how you can attain early retirement and whittle away your last 30 years searching for seashells in Florida. 
Or are you asking God to give you a spirit of wisdom so that you'll know how to fill each and every day with just the right amount of activities and prioritizing the things that matter the very most? Because our days are numbered and our time is limited. So Lord, teach me what to put in. Lord, teach me what to leave out. And that is so important for us, again, because society is trying to pull us constantly into that ditch of more, more, more. But if I'm going to make the priority what needs to be the priority, I'm going to have to learn to say no to almost everything. I remember reading a book recently by some well-known productivity expert or somebody who's made it big in the tech field or whatever, and his answer to the question of how he had accomplished what he had accomplished in his life was, I say no to almost everything. You're going to have opportunity to do so many more things than you're ever going to have the time to do, so you have got to prioritize what matters the most. God, give us this heart of wisdom so we'll know what to put in, what to leave out, and what should be the priority. Because if you live your life as if your days were not numbered, you will fill them with things that you'll eventually regret. When you're on your deathbed, you'll look back and say, I wish I had or I wish I would have. And if you live your life as if your days are numbered, you'll immediately say, wait a minute, I cannot fill my schedule with meaningless junk like that or, or I cannot leave out the people and the priorities that matter the most. If we live as if my time is limited, then I will limit my, how I spend my time. My time is limited, so I need to limit how I spend my time. So we wrap up this morning. I, I need to, I'm not used to preaching with a deadline, so I'm going to try to wrap this up. Some of you probably heard of, the, any of you who may be in nursing, I'm sure have, have heard of this, but there was a nurse by the name of Bronnie Ware who first wrote an article and then it was uh, turned into a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. She became a hospice nurse who devoted most of her time to caring for people in the last 12 weeks of their lives. And she would often have lengthy conversations with her patients and ask them if they had any regrets in their lives. She began to notice a pattern and take notes of what she learned. And the, law, the top two regrets that people had were number two, people said, I wished I hadn't worked so hard. And that's what they said. I don't know exactly that that's the terminology that they meant, but, but what they're saying is, I wish I hadn't made my career or my work such a priority in my life. It was the number two thing. In fact, she said that this came from every male patient that she nursed. They missed their children's youth and their partner's companionship. And as Christians, we could add other high priorities that should be on our list when we make our career, when we make our work, our passion and priority, the day is going to come because we have not gained a heart of wisdom because we didn't learn the lesson at the house of mourning that we will be in our final days and look back with the greatest pain that I know human beings can experience and that is the pain of regret and saying, I wish I had not made that such a big priority in my life. And I think the number one thing that she lists is actually connected to it. It says that the number one regret that people gave was, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. 
As a Christian, when I read that, I realize again that God has a few vitally important priorities for my life. And it would be a shame to miss them because I allowed the world to pull me into cramming it full of things of lesser value and importance. Romans 12 tells us, do not be conformed to this world. And this world wants to conform you, or press you into its mold of more, 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 produce, produce, produce things that ultimately and finally won't matter and that we'll look back and regret. But imagine how your life would be better from God's point of view as well as your own if you had the wisdom to number your days and if you had the courage to live them according to the priorities that you have and the values that you have derived from your independent study of God's word and determining what's most important and not allowing yourself to be dictated to by the pressure of the culture around you. If we want to build margin, we're going to have to do it by subtraction because rumor has it God's not going to give us 26 hours in a day. You're going to have to learn to subtract the things that do not matter. And you're going to have to replace them by adding in the things that really do and giving greater priority to those things and lesser to those that you know when you get the heart of wisdom and you look ahead at your final days and what you will know then when you look back and live today in the light of that. Well, thank you so much for your kind attention this morning.